Here's Neymar now. Cavani is there. And Saint-Étienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Calou for Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Tovac. Kylian Mbappé wraps it up. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Le Beaujeu, dedicated this week to the current French champions, Paris Saint-Germain. Joining me in the pod, I've got the uh, This Is Paris producer, the uh, weekly Paris Saint-Germain television show, Robbie Thompson. Hi, Robbie. Bonjour, everyone. Hello, Matt. Allez, Paris. This is the one I've been waiting for. Yeah, we're going to try and get some objectivity as well from David <laughs> Crossan, who's a Paris resident and a, a Ligue 1 commentator. How are you, Dave? Yeah, I think I started watching PSG about the same time as Robbie, but I perhaps have slightly less strong links with them, a bit less affinity, let's say. Well, we've got a very special guest who has very strong links with, uh, with Paris Saint-Germain. Welcome to Le Beaujeu, to the former PSG player Didier Domi. How are you doing, Didier? Fine, Mathieu. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's fantastic uh, to, to have you joining us. Didier uh, grew up in Paris, joined the club, correct me if I'm wrong, but joined the club at the age of 13. Two spells at the Parc des Princes from 1994 to, to 98. And then after uh, playing in England with Newcastle and, and Leeds, Didier came back in 2001. Three more seasons at uh, PSG. Also played for Espanyol, Olympiacos, and uh, New England in the, in the MLS. Uh, Didier, it's fair to say you've had um, a great career. You've played for some great football clubs, but Paris Saint-Germain must be the, the club that sort of counts the most in terms of, in terms of your heart, in terms of your, your background and, and your life. Yes, of course. You know, I was born in, in Sarcelles, you know, the, the, this town, you know, it's, uh, it's north of Paris, so... Uh, then I moved, you know, to a little village, you know, in uh, in in the Val d'Oise. So of course, you know, I was a fan of Paris Saint Germain. Um, it went so quickly for me, you know, because I started very early. I, I didn't even realize, you know, because I, I entered, you know, the, the academy at, at the age of thirteen. Uh, my coach was Guignoudou. I don't know if you know him. So he played for Paris Saint Germain in the, in the early seventies. So uh, first of all, it was a, an honor, you know, to play under him and. Uh, and then uh, it, it, it's it's like a, it's like a dream after because Luis, you know, one day came to see me and uh, you know in the academy and said, you know, prepare yourself, you know, you're gonna enter in the, in the league cup in '95. Wow, you know, it's going very 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 quickly. And then I played my first game in uh, in '95. It, it was against Lyon, but of course it was a, a big proud, you know, to play for your club, you know, where mm. you were going to the stand, you know, in a, in a, in Auteuil and. Uh, and then going on the pitch was a uh, was really crazy. But then you have to uh, you have to go on. So so it's a really proud because this million million of kids in uh, in France who wants to play for Paris Saint Germain uh, to be one of them. It was a uh, was a really proud yes. Well, we're going to talk a bit about Luis Fernandez, the coach who gave you your your debut. You were the youngest PSG debutant. You had that record for a long time until Kingsley Coman beat you in 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 2013 but lots of lots of stories i just want to ask you about sarcel that, that, i mean that's a suburb in in the north of paris riyad mahrez also grew grew up in sarcel i mean it's one of these um cite these these suburbs that that produce so many in, incredible football players um was it was it for you a case of football being being a way of life for for a young age and you know with with, with all your friends was it just uh, 
you know, every, it, it, what you did whenever you had spare time. Tell us a bit about how, how you got into it and how you got to the academy. But, you know, when you're on suburb of Paris, you play all the time, but I mean all the time on the street, you know, it's, uh, you can play all afternoon, you know, after lunch, you know, between two and six. And, um, and I think that's where we learn, you know, the, the, the camaraderie, the, 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 the footballs, our skills, look at Riyadh, you know, what he's doing now in a, in England, so it's not only Sarcelles, it's everywhere in suburb of Paris. You can be from South, from Essan, or you can be from, uh, from 77, Senemansi. Everybody was playing outside, you know, until late at night. Uh, as you know, our mothers has to, <laughs> has to yell at us, you know, just to come back at the house. So it was uh, really fun growing up in the, in the suburb of Paris in that time. I mean, uh, obviously today as well but it was it was really special and uh, and that's why you see so many uh, 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 people you know from the from the suburb you know turning out uh, professional the the paris matt the the paris uh, region is considered the second biggest sort of pool of of young talent in the world after after sao paulo and didier i wonder you talk about playing outside all the time growing up do you think it's still that way I mean, this is, and I'm not saying that you're old, you're like, like, like us, but <laughs> the mid-40s, but we're talking 30, 30 years ago, the, the, the 80s. Have things changed a lot, do you think? Do you ever get back to the suburbs? Do you see where you grew up? And do you think their kids are still playing like that? Uh, unfortunately, no. I would like them to play a little bit more. As you know, this is a, this is a bit difficult because this is the, um, how do you say this? this not this society, but, uh, you know, internet and everything. So the kids are more at home, you know. Um, it's difficult to, to, to get them into the, into, the, into the pitch, you know. They like uh, video games. And, um, and, and, you know, last time I was, uh, I was reading something about Kurt. And he was saying, you know, I think our kids now, um, they miss maybe four or five hours of football, football street. Every week he was saying, and I was totally agree uh, with him. Um, I, I think the kids should be more on the on the street, playing, enjoying, and as well, you know, when you play on the street, this is a interaction, social interaction. You understand? So, uh, and football is all about that. You know, it's not an individual sport. So, I think, uh, yeah, we missed a bit of that. You know, when you go in every suburb of Paris, west, east, south, you don't see the the kids playing in the, in the street. But the thing they've done good uh, at the Federation, uh, they set up, you know, the, like we call the, the city stadium. And uh, I can see some of them playing there, so that's good. You know. That's where, you know, Pogba and all, you know, they, they, they started, so that's good. I think what's interesting in the, in the Paris region is, um, and people listening to us abroad might not know this, but there's no real school sport in France. So the people who are important in terms of the football education are the, the educateurs. So Kylian Mbappe's dad did this in Bondi. And when you see the links that um, William Saliba still feels so strongly about Kylian Mbappe's dad, they're the important figures within the local community. And they help in the education in terms of, as, a, as a footballer, but also in helping these players mature even before they get onto the, the books of professional clubs? Well, it's, 
it's a fascinating topic and we will be talking about that even more in our next special pod which is going to be on Kylian Mbappe we've got an Mbappe podcast for you coming up and uh, a special on Olympique de Marseille um, as well let's get to the crux of the matter here which is which is Paris Saint-Germain you're listening to to Le Bourgeois you can uh, rate us on all the platforms Spotify, Deezer, Apple, Google you can contact us if you have any questions um, questions for Didier that we'll get to you or we'll get to Didier, or questions about Mbappe or even Marseille. League One podcast at gmail.com is, uh, is our email. But this week, like I say, the focus is on Paris Saint-Germain, a club that has had a relatively short existence, founded it in 1970. But in their life, they have had so many incredible historical moments. And we will be looking back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. But we're going to start you with... Um, Bit of discussion about a more a more modern uh, phenomenon, and that is the purchase of Paris Saint Germain by the Qatar Sports Investment Group in uh, 2011, which has changed, of course, the face of the modern day Paris Saint Germain. Now we're very lucky that uh, uh, our regular pundit Robbie Thompson has been out and about. He's got his phone book out, and he's been uh, he's been calling some uh, some important figures in Paris Saint Germain's history. We're going to hear from Guillaume Waro, um, the striker, a, a bit later, and we're going to hear from. Uh, from Maxwell, who joined Paris Saint-Germain in, um, in 2012, January 2012, early on in the Qatari era. And uh, Maxwell was telling Robbie about the Paris Saint-Germain that he discovered back then. Um, it's important, especially for our younger listeners, to, to realise that before the Qataris took over, PSG were struggling quite, quite, quite regularly. They nearly got relegated in, in 2008. And Maxwell was surprised, to say the least, about what he discovered at the Comte des Loges, the, the training ground, the infrastructure, uh, and just what a shock it was to the system having played previously at uh, Inter Milan and, uh, and Barcelona. So let's hear from Maxwell. I was in shock in the beginning uh, about the, the infrastructure that we had in Comte des Loges. Uh, I think uh, had impact also in a sportive way how we were playing only the weekends. I have never played only the weekends before. So I had no games during the week, no Champions League, no Europa League. I think the facilities that was the most uh, shocking for me. The, the field was uh, in another condition. Uh, I think the dressing room was completely different. We had no restaurant at the time. Everything was improvising, but I could see because we had a lot of talks with Leonardo, with Carlo, and especially with Nick that Carlo had as a performance in that time. So he was trying to change a little bit or a lot of things in um, in Candeloge to give us better conditions and uh, it was moving fast I could see that the wheel was there uh, everybody wanted to change everybody saw that had to change and uh, and it was shocking but was motivating as well so um, I was enjoying the guys I was trying to to fit myself also in the team because I was always uh, shy to come in inside of a new atmosphere so i was trying also to build some relation with the, the guys the everybody received me and tiago and alex really well so it was was challenging uh, but it was motivating as well i think uh, I, I was trying to motivate myself to be part of this give my advices when i was asked for and um, and change, change was they were really going fast, and uh, this was also something that I could see. 
Well, some very interesting insight from, from Maxwell. Uh, Didier Domi, who played, like I say, you had two spells at, at Paris Saint-Germain. Does that sort of strike a, a chord with you, what Maxwell was saying? What are your memories of, uh, of the training ground um, just outside of uh, Saint-Germain-en-Laye in, in, in the western suburbs of Paris? I agree with Max. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't the best, you know, only two pitches, you know, with some, some, cabin, some cabins. It was... Um, it was a bit difficult at that time, you know. It was not uh, not regular. It was all the time, it, uh, like we say in France, like bricolage. I don't know how we say it in <laughs> in, yeah, a, cobbled, in cobbled together, or yeah, exactly. So, um, but the pitch was all right. But when the the winter was coming as well, it it was a uh, it was pretty pretty bad. So, um, for a standout of Paris, of the capital, you know, of the of those millions of people and the people playing in the Parc des Princes. I don't think it was a. It was a good thing. Didier, I've I've got memories, but correct me if I'm wrong. Of players having to take having to get changed and then take a bus or a mini bus to the training ground, or maybe that was just when they were um, rebuilding rebuilding stuff. Was it like that in your day? No, no, it it, it was that time, you know, because we had um, they had built, you know, when uh, something, you know, it was on the on the age of the Candelage, you know, it was quite good, you know, with a. Uh, all balneotherapy, you know, everything, you know, for, for physics. And then, you know, they decided, you know, to go at the end of the Candelage, where they are now, because the pitches were better, you know, it was, uh, uh, it was more private. And uh, so, yeah, we had to take that minibus every time. So I remember we had a couple of laughs, you know, with Nicolas, Nicolas and Elke and everybody, you know, going to, to that point, to the, to the pitch. I'm surprised he got on the bus. Nicholas and Elka. <laughs> they couldn't get it. They couldn't get him off it, Dave. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's interesting because this. This is still and and Maxwell's comments and what you're saying, Didier, obviously mean that this the infrastructures were not worthy of a of a big club. But this is still a big club in France. This is a a club that before the Qataris arrived had won the European Cup Winners' Cup, had made it another final, had made you know and we'll talk about it later those five european semi-finals in a row they'd won the league twice they'd won the 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 coupe de la league and the and the coupe de france nearly more than any other team at that stage already so we're talking about a side that still has success i mean it's not just the the conditions can't have been that bad certainly when max says i was shocked max is coming from inter milan former several time european champions from barcelona who were one of the biggest and best clubs in the world and it was the start of that project, and it's it's the the growth that we're seeing now in Paris Saint Germain. But I think it's it's it seems it seems incongruous to think that it was impossible for you to train, and yet you still had success. How how is that possible? No, of course. At the end of the day, you know there was two good pitches. It's not uh, it's not that. It's um, you know we had friends all over Europe. Um, in Man United, in Milan, everywhere. So you could know, you could talk with them. You know, how's mm. the training ground? How's everything? How's the facilities? So, uh, you know, when I was going on, uh, on the 21 uh, uh, with Mika Silvestre and all that later on. So, of course, you know, we knew, you know, our training ground wasn't the best in, uh, in Europe. But at the same time, it was not easy because everybody wanted to stay in Saint-Germain. And as you know, Robbie, there's not too many land over there because you've got the army next door mm-hmm. uh you've got the domanial forest but uh you can't build on that so that was um that was hard to find a solution uh, in that day 
How important is it, Didier, to, you know, obviously they brought some phenomenal players starting in sort of 2011 with Pastore and then going on and uh, Latan uh, arriving in, in, in 2012 with Thiago Silva. Um, obviously, those guys bring a huge amount on the pitch, but, it, but it's off the pitch as well, isn't it? And it's that sort of reaction that Maxwell says, hang on, guys, you know, we need to get a lot more professional here. And I mean, you know, just just obviously they needed to invest in the Comte de Loge, and Robbie will tell us a bit more about what the Comte de Loge is is like now. But how important was the influence of those guys off the pitch? Do you think? Because we've seen what Zlatan and all that have done on the pitch. But they were in a, in a, in the best club in, a, in not in Europe in the world. So when you see La La, La Masia, it's incredible. You know, in terms of uh, of pitches, in terms of. Uh, of facilities, you know, for recover and everything. So, and you know, football is uh, is very high intensity now. So you need to recover as well as you uh, as you could. So, um, physio and everything, it's it's very important uh, the, the, those days. You know how you recover because you play every day with European Cup. And we couldn't do it at that time. And when Max and, uh, and Ibra came, of course, they couldn't do it. Uh, at the highest, so of course they had to change everything. It's much, much better. You know, Robbie will tell us about that now. But um, uh, if you want to compete at the highest level, of course you need those kind of facilities. Robbie, what is it like now? Because as a, uh, the last time I went as a journalist, I was, uh, I was made to stand, <laughs> to stand outside and I had to do an interview in, in a porter cabin. And um, it, it didn't feel like I was at the Milanello, but... The, <laughs> But the Camp de Lodge, clearly, I mean, Jonathan Caldwell has done an unbelievable job with the pitches, hasn't he? And yeah, I, I guess the facilities are all top notch now. Yeah, once you get inside, which is not always the case for, for foreign journalists, perhaps, Matt, who don't get the, the royal treatment. <laughs> Certainly, we were inside for a while at PSG TV, but, but the club is growing and still growing, even to this day, very, very quickly. That we've, we have been pushed out. All the media facilities are now in, in porter cabins out on the side of the pitch, but we have a great view of the pitch. We have a studio that looks out onto the, onto the football pitch. Let's keep in mind as well that they have a brand new training facility which is coming in the next couple of years, which is going to have a 5,000-seater roofed stadium, uh, 15 training pitches. They're going to have the youth academy there with the senior boys. The, the judo team, the handball team, everyone is, looks like they're all going to be training together in this, this omni-sport giant uh, training center in Poissy, which will be the, the, the match of Manchester City or Tottenham or these brand new training centers that we see all over the world. It's going to be something very, very special. So for the moment, they're not going to invest hugely in the old Comte de Loge because they're investing hugely in this state-of-the-art training center that's coming but for the moment look the, we at PSG TV have been pushed out onto the side but that's because they now have all the medical facilities they have a restaurant where you eat very very well that was one of the things that Zlatan immediately put in place as soon as he arrived there was nowhere to eat so the players they come there for breakfast now they come there for lunch they can they can eat properly there are nutritionists there making sure that all the ingredients are correct that the players are eating balanced meals and all of this is what these players brought when they came from when they came from Barcelona from from AC Milan from English football they they brought this culture of everything is designed for the player so that the player only needs to think of one thing 
which is concentrate on his football and not have to worry about what he's eating, not have to worry about how he's going to get from A to B, just focus on football. And it's a very professional bubble that the footballers are in now. And the Comte de Loge has to provide them with everything. Well, Robbie, I heard that Zlatan was particularly demanding at the Comte de Loge uh, restaurant, um, wanted a particular diet, and he didn't like the froth on his, on, on his coffee. I think uh, pas de la mousse, pas de la mousse. people heard him say pas de, pas de, pas de la mousse on his coffee and uh, the, uh, the kitchen staff were quickly taught how to make a Zlatan style coffee perhaps that he was accustomed to in, uh, in Italy. But, but let's talk football now. I, I mentioned um, PSG's big signings. It started with Javier Pastore coming in for 45 million from Palermo, Blaise Matuidi and uh, Jeremy Menez as well. And then in January 2012, Maxwell joined along with Thiago Motta and Alex. And of course, the following summer with uh, Carlo Ancelotti at the club, um, the two big signings, huge signings from, from AC Milan, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and, and Thiago Silva. One of our guests, Maxwell, um, talks about the influence that he had on helping PSG convince these guys to come to Paris. Now, Maxwell is a, a great friend of Zlatan, played with him at, uh, at Ajax, at uh, Inter and at Barcelona. And um, yeah, I think he had quite some influence on that signing. Here is uh, Maxwell. Thiago was speaking more with Slatan, I think, mm. than with me. <laughs> but uh, I, I think a um, role of talking and saying uh, what I was feeling. Of course, I said to him. He was asking me uh, once we had that we had we could have him and Thiago. Um, I was trying to at least to make it in his head the clear situation of the club. And I knew that things were changing. It was not going to be easy because coming from Milan as a team, a giant as well in Europe, mm -hmm. that had everything done and ready to a team that was building something was also shocking for him. But uh, I knew that we could convince him on, on the project. And I think um, he did a huge step for in his career coming to, to Paris, going to Paris, because he was feeling really a part of the project, building something. And he really helped the team of building this image that we have today. You, you, you mentioned earlier the restaurant, the fact that there was no restaurant. There's a famous story of Zlatan uh, just losing his temper that the food wasn't, wasn't good enough, that it, that it needed to be, to be better. Was, was all that, the, the food, the restaurant, the, the way the club is run, all of this about creating a, the best environment for the players, is that what was missing for these players coming from other big European clubs to, to just concentrate no, think, purely on football? I think so. I think we have a lot of details around the, the facilities that, that, Rob, you know, I think you know as, as me, we spend so much time in the club, more than maybe during some periods of the year, more than home. Mm. That you you need to have, or you everybody wants to have the best conditions to perform. To perform, we had a lot of pressure to win, and it, there, there were things that we were trying to 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 let uh, the guys in charge to know that uh, we could eat a little bit better, we could train in a better pitch, have a better gym, some some facilities for the physio, some machines for the physios to to work on. Of course, we talk about prevention. All this is prevention of injuries and performing on the pitch. So we were trying. It's, I think it's so important to have this, that we can spend time and quality time in the club, 
training, prevent, preventing something bad and, and trying to, to perform and to develop this system of, of game. So, of course, it was, was very hard to every one of us uh, that, was, that were coming from other clubs. But it was challenging and motivating us. Uh, I think everybody was positive. Sometimes a little bit losing temper is, is part of, the, of a change as well. But uh, everything was for the good of the, the, the club. Well, Zlatan's arrival was, of course, fantastic news for, for Paris Saint-Germain and for their supporters. One man who perhaps, I think it's fair to say, uh, would have had mixed feelings was Guillaume Moirot, who was the big, tall target man striker at Paris Saint-Germain, joined them in, in 2008 and effectively lost his place um, to Zlatan Ibrahimovic. But uh, Guillaume Moirot left a lot of fond memories um, at the Parc des Princes. And Robbie Thompson has uh, spoken to him about that time and about his thoughts on, uh, on Zlatan joining the club. At the beginning, we were like excited because we said, oh, the big team is, is coming. So, wow, this is nice. So, me, uh, they told me like, look, we build a big team and you will be part of it. So, without any promises. So, I just said to myself, okay, like do like you, like you always do before. So, fight for your position. Nobody has this certain place in the pitch. But then when about Ibrahimovic, I say, mm, that would be difficult, you know, <laughs> because you have Ibrahimovic, you, at this time we had Gamero, Jeremy Menez, a lot of, a lot of players, uh, good strikers, and, and Ancelotti when you arrive. We understood, like, because we were first on the ranking and they, they fired Comboire uh, for Ancelotti. So we say, there won't be any gift to anyone. So no privilege this time. So Leonardo told us, look, now the new ship is, is, is cruising. So, oh, you, you, are, you, you keep strong, you're strong, and you just jump into the boat and you fight for your position and enjoy it because that will be fast. You know, the time is going. So I said to myself, okay, I stay. I try my best. And then Charlotte, it was one of my best coach I ever ever had with the this human part, you know, you know us to to uh, how to talk with the, the players. So yeah, I was fighting for my position. So I always been on the on the squad, on the bench, and I was waiting for my minutes. So uh that's what at the beginning was hard. You you left your 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 position on the eleven start and then you go on the bench. So you say, okay. Ivanovic is playing, so it's normal, you know. And uh, but he was playing every game, and sometimes I was joking with him, like, "Hey, Zlatan, give me five minutes, please." And look at me, like, "No, <laughs> you know, it, this guy is so it's crazy." I really have a lot of pleasure to train with him. But uh, after that, when you know that even on the bench there is no more space, you start to wonder, "Whoa, what should I do now?" And then when they bought David Beckham, I understood that that's more than just a club. They want to reach the world, you know. So, and I, I understood understood how the business works. So Beckham was for the image of the club. But I say, okay, I was, I put my stone on it, but I don't have my place anymore. When Beckham is there, he's like almost at the end of his career. So where, should, where will I sit? There is no more space on the bench or on the tribune. It's nice, one, two games, but then what? 
So that's why after I say I will finish my season and then next year I will see. But during the the break, holidays, the, the Christmas break, the Chinese, they call me and they, you know, Chinese are crazy. So they just give you a check with a lot of zero on it. And I just say, how can I leave Paris to go in another clubs in France? That's just impossible. I just took the opportunity because I start my, my career late. So I knew that it was a lot of money and I still have my music dream. So everything was planned, built in my head. If I take this risk, I won't regret it. I will do everything for not regretting it. And that's why I went after for, for, for China because other clubs, they were talking, but no, nothing serious because the salary was too high or blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and then, yeah, I went to China. So that was a mistake because uh, it was a, re a real mess there. But, you know, you just know it when that happened to you. And then uh, after this, I came back and five years later, I'm in Switzerland still. Well, Didier Domi was uh, at Paris Saint-Germain when they had some, some wonderful footballers. I think uh, Ginola and Weir were at the club when, when you broke through, Didier. You came into the side with, uh, with Nicola and Elka. Um, but 2012, it, it was different, wasn't it? It was a different era. Um, and it was just an incredible, it was like shockwaves uh, in French football when Zlatan Ibrahimovic joined Liga and PSG started piecing together this, uh, this, this wonderful side. What, what were you thinking at the time? Were, were you quite excited for PSG? Of course, I was exciting. I, I think we entered uh, another world, as uh, everybody knows, because before in the 90s or even uh, in the 80s, we were a club where you were starting in Paris Saint-Germain and then you were going to, to, to La Liga or to, uh, or to the English uh, 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 Premier League, like Ronaldinho, like where I went to Milan. So... To see those kind of uh, people you were seeing uh, uh, in European Cup, you know, Maxwell, Ibra coming to Paris Saint-Germain, we just, uh, you know, understood that we, 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 we enter another planet and, uh, and we're so thrilled, you know, to have those kind of players, especially uh, Ibra. Even, you know, when you look at Thiago, uh, Thiago Silva, Thiago Mota, it was... Uh, uh, because, for example, Thiago Mota just, uh, you know, won the... The, the, the Champions League in 2010. So two of those kind of players coming from the best leagues in the world coming to Paris. Uh, yeah, we knew uh, it was in a, a new era for us. I mean, we've had some top players in, in, in Liga, even, even in the modern era. But, you know, Zlatan was, was different. I remember getting text messages from, from some English journalists, just like, you know, exclamation marks, emojis, sort of uh, Zlatan, oh my goodness. And, you know, it did... It did change, I think, not just the face of Paris Saint-Germain, but, but Ligue 1 as well. Suddenly, everybody wanted to know what was going on in, in, in Ligue 1. I don't know how you, how, how you experienced it, 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 Robbie. I mean, exciting times, obviously, for, for everybody involved at the club. Well, I was, I was actually back in Australia for two years then, between 2011 and 2012, which was, but I was still the, the, the club's official translator. And I remember when Zlatan... Uh, signed and six months later when David Beckham signed, I was getting messages from the club saying, please, can you be available at 11 a.m. at this time, at, at, uh, at 6 p.m. on this date? And these were at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning for me in Australia. So I was getting up and they wouldn't give too much away. I heard all the rumors. I knew stuff was coming. And then about half an hour before it became official, I'd get sent 
a, a press release that I had to translate quickly to get up. And, and there it was. And I was sort of three o'clock in the morning. Zlatan Ibrahimovic signs four-year contract for Paris Saint-Germain. It was, it was, it was just incredible. The David Beckham signs for Paris Saint-Germain. Look, it, it confirmed that the Qatari investors were serious about this project, that they, that they wanted to take this all the way. And I think you, you, you talk about the David Beckham's, Guillaume Moirot talked about that when Beckham signed, he understood that this was, there was no place for him at the club, that, it was, that the club was global. But they also got the Thiago Mottas, the Maxwells, the professionals that, that knew how to help build a club, and, all, and Carlo Ancelotti, people that had the experience of these big clubs. It wasn't just for show. This is the honest feeling I had is that they weren't just bling, bling, we're going to buy everything and take over. They, they wanted to build something solid. And I think the domestic success, the consistent domestic success, shows just how solid they built it. But because Robbie, they win what, everything. That's, that's what Maxwell was saying, isn't it? He was saying that Zlatan, he convinced Zlatan to come because he, Zlatan had always been at huge clubs. But the appeal of coming to Paris Saint-Germain was to build something and to be the mm. centre of, of this project. And a lot of people were dubious, thinking, well, he's the wrong side of 30. Um, what's he going to be like? But he took it to, to, to heart, didn't he? From that very first game against Lorient, where he scored two goals and became very quickly the darling of the, of the Parc des Princes. Um, you know, it was it was very clear that Zlatan wasn't just looking to wind down his career at this point. Zlatan was huge for Paris Saint-Germain because what we've not mentioned yet is that in the first season, Paris Saint-Germain did not win the title. They were top at Christmas, uh, got rid of Antoine Comboare, brought in Carlo Ancelotti and ended up finishing second to Montpellier. So in the summer of 2012, they really needed to do something audacious to prove that they were potentially going to become a European giant. And what better way to do that than to sign players of the calibre and charisma of Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Thiago Silva. I just loved Zlatan on and off the pitch. And before Robbie took over Paris Saint-Germain's weekly magazine, I was doing it on a a twice a month basis. And the fact that Ibrahimovic and Beckham were there made the job so easy because you could just find pictures of them doing anything in the training ground, talking and you knew that people around the world would be interested. And Paris Saint-Germain did not have that before. Pastore, as much as Robbie enjoyed watching Pastore, it just wasn't the same calibre of figure. And I think that's what's impressed me so much in the Qatari era, is that when you're worried that the project might be stalling, they find a way to pull it out of the fire. And the same thing happened in 2017, after Monaco won the title, when they signed Neymar and Mbappe. Just when you're thinking this could all unravel, they find a way. Dave, I, th- I think you're selling yourself short because those magazine shows you produced were, were of the highest quality. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just thanks you to set the, You set the standard, Dave. You put the bar very <laughs> high. <laughs> it's been interesting listening to, to Dave, Didier Domi, Robbie, but also listening to Maxwell and, uh, and Guillaume Moirot. And if you want to listen um, to those interviews in full, you can find them on, uh, on our platform, Le Beaujeu, the official Ligue 1 podcast, uh, Spotify, Deezer, Apple, and, uh, and Google, we have interviews with the PSG stars, also interviews with Mikel Silvestre, Robbie Slater, Tony Cascarino, names from, from Ligue 1's past. But uh, I thought Maxwell was fascinating on Zlatan, but also I was quite surprised to hear him talking about David Beckham having such an impact on him because Maxwell is, is a guy who's played for the biggest clubs, he's played with the biggest stars. And I think we, as Englishmen, we sometimes underestimate David Beckham's aura and his uh, his his influence, and also, 
yeah, the way he is just so impeccably professional. And I, I do think David Beckham, in the short time he was there, had a bigger impact on, on PSG than we realised. But I want to bring Didier Domi in on another personality, another individual who had a, a big influence and is now back for his second spell. It's Leonardo, who was appointed sporting director by the Qataris in 2011 and was the man who oversaw a lot of these huge signings. And um, sadly, I think it's, uh, it's fair to say for PSG, Leonardo left the club in, in 2013. But Didier, you, you played with him, wonderful Brazilian footballer um, back in the 1990s. You knew him. Were you surprised that he was back at the club and uh, doing such an incredible job? No, when you knew him, no, you're not surprised. Uh, first of all, Leo, when he was with us, it was only one year. But uh, he left such um, um, big moments, you know, with, uh, with those games. You know, it was only one year, but it's like he spent maybe three or four years with us. Because from the first day, of course, Rai was there, you know, we had some Brazilians, so it was better... Uh, for him to, 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 to fit in that team. But uh, it was one year full of memory, full of, um, of, uh, of very good things with, uh, with Leo because he's a, he's a very good guy first. You know, he's always uh, uh, you know, happy to have a laugh with you. He's, uh, he's very intelligent. You know, he's got a lot of culture as well. You know, he can give you advice you know, to the young people. And in, uh, and, uh, in some meetings, you, know, he can, you could see he had a, not a charisma like, yeah, like Rai, but uh, he he could talk, you know, he could say things very simply, but uh, uh, but, but to send a, a, a message. So so that's why when he came back in 2000, 2011, I don't remember when, it was, um, I was very happy because we, we know what kind of uh, things Leo is capable of. And, uh, and we've seen it, you know, without him, you know, maybe Ibra or Maxwell, you know, wouldn't have came. So... Uh, it was a, a key part in the project of Paris Saint-Germain, but um, um, is, is, is really part of the family. That's why I, I, tr- I would like to say even in one year, you know, we, we welcome him like he, he had spent maybe four or five years in, in Paris Saint-Germain. So that's incredible for me. Do you think, Didier, PSG's recent years might have been less frustrating? I know they've won a huge amount, but the Champions League has been a bit frustrating. Do you think there can be certain regrets that Carlo Ancelotti was allowed to go, that Leonardo was, was allowed to go. Now, obviously, the fact Leonardo's come back suggests that the Qataris maybe do have a little bit of regret. But uh, do, do you think maybe PSG would be further ahead with their project if that duo had stayed Yeah, on? definitely, definitely. Um, especially with, uh, with Leo, because uh, as everybody can see, he's the, he's the real architect of the, uh, of the team. You know, when you... You bring such a month of player with with that kind of quality in a, in a short amount of time, like Ibra, Thiago Mota, uh, Beckham. It, it's incredible, you know. It's like uh, it's Verratti. Verratti, exactly. And don't forget, exactly Verratti and Marquinhos. You know, it, 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 it's not easy, you know, to to take a young prospect player like this at 19. You don't know how they're gonna um, they're gonna uh, play in Paris Saint Germain. So. Leo is um, is unbelievable. Of course, you know he, he had a lot of experience, you know, in uh, in Inter and Milan. You know, he was a, he was a, I think director. He was a coach, so um, big experience. But um, his mentality, what he brought to the team, of course, you know, when he left, you know, it was a was a big blow for us because we would have been much higher, I think, with uh, with Leonardo. I think I think it's interesting, Didier, because you. We know, and we know what a what 
what pedigree Leonardo has, how good he is at spotting these young players. He he learned it when he left Paris Saint-Germain at the end of 97, uh, the 96-97 season. He went to Milan. I think he played a couple of games in the start of 97-98 for Paris, a memorable last ever game in Europe as well, where he provided four assists and then, and then left to join Milan. But as a player at Milan, he was loved as well as a player. And then he became sporting director at Milan. He was sporting director at Inter. He's coached both of them, I think, as well. He's, he's learnt the, the, the other side in Italy, which was for a long time the beacon of professionalism and organization for clubs, these, these huge clubs where they have their training centers, they, they, they buy and sell players, their, their business plan is purely professional. And Leo, when he came to Paris Saint-Germain, like we say, he had that success, he brought in these players. But I think it's very interesting to see just how ambitious this Paris Saint-Germain club is and how much pressure there is on them. Let's not forget that Leo went barging into a referee in post-match and got a nine-month ban from the French Football Federation, which is why he, he felt he had to leave Paris Saint-Germain because he couldn't operate as a sporting director anymore. And Carlo Ancelotti left after that year they won the league. And these are, these are hugely experienced people who felt that the pressure was too much or perhaps you know, forced Leonardo into something, uh, clearly something he would regret later by, by shoulder charging the referee um, in, the, in, the, in the way in the tunnel that got him that ban, that, that, that Carlo left. I think that shows that the pressure was huge on this Paris Saint-Germain. The ambition of the Qatari owners to just dominate everything was huge. And despite these guys being huge figures in world football, it got to them as well. And I think if Leonardo came back, it's to try and rebuild it, but perhaps a little bit differently this time. I, well, at that time, Robbie, was, it was, they were victims of impatience, weren't they? Exactly. That, Frustration um, and impatience, I think. One bad result at Rance and suddenly Carlo Ancelotti is summoned very late at night and given hardly veiled threats about his job security and what he needed to do in order to be able to stay there. And as you say, doing that to someone of Ancelotti's experience and renown and know-how, even if he hadn't managed to secure that 2012 title, that was never going to end well. So I, I think the club has learned, and I also think that the, the owners have learned, and Nasser El-Khalifi has learned, and it's, uh, it's far better structured now and with a greater understanding of what being a top-level club entails than it was in that 2011 to 2013 period, even if they had the success and they started bringing in the players who were the bedrock of all of these titles now that Thiago Silva and Marco Verratti are up to seven titles each. We're going to, to talk more about PSG's modern history and well, the, the, the current team and the current challenge facing Leonardo in part two of the pod. I think Leonardo is popular in France because he, he didn't mark Zidane very well at that corner in, the, in 1998 in the World Cup final. But, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm just a cynic. Let's... Let's go back in time now in the pod. Let's go all the way back to the 1970s. But uh, to help us through this transition, we're going to listen to Guillaume Waro, who uh, is still playing football in, in Switzerland, left a very positive mark uh, during his time at Paris Saint-Germain. But it is, he's also a musician, and he's, um, he's been um, putting together some lovely songs, including Pan Am, which is sort of a, a love song, a, a tribute to Paris Saint-Germain and to the city that he fell in love with during his time 
between 2008 and 2013 at the Parc des Princes. Over to you, Guillaume. Sans la chaleur du fond de mon cœur, Paname, Paname, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien, ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va, je te réclame, mon cher Paname. Si je rentre au bercail, me tendras-tu les bras Panam, Panam, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien Well, we know that Zlatan Ibrahimovic is outspoken. One of his famous comments um, before a Champions League game against Chelsea was that uh, PSG, uh, we all know, were born when the Qataris arrived in 2011. He insists that PSG didn't have um, much history, didn't really have much to talk about before 2011, but Didier Domi, who is with us today, is living proof that that is not true. Uh, <laughs> PSG were founded back in 1970. David Crossan can tell us a little bit more about, about their early years, Dave. Yeah, um, football in the French capital has a checkered and troubled history that uh, until PSG won the title in 1986, no club from the capital had won it since Racing Club in 1936. And so you had this great stadium, the Parc des Princes, which in its modern incarnation uh, was finished in 1972, but you didn't really have a, a team to fill it. In 1970, Paris Saint-Germain were founded and it was a merger between two clubs, a merger between Paris, Saint Paris Football Club and Stade Saint-Germain-Noir. And they managed to go up in their first year, spent a year in the top division, but there was sort of political infighting, there wasn't really a, a proper structure to it and there ended up being a split between Paris Football Club who kept the first division status and Paris Saint-Germain who dropped down to the third tier and those familiar with French football will know that once you're in the third tier of French football well you've got to sort that out very quickly otherwise you're going to disappear into oblivion and fortunately for Paris Saint-Germain they had a visionary president in Daniel Eshter the couturier who had approached Harry FC, in fact, but uh, was turned away by them, ended up taking on, on Paris Saint-Germain. And he appointed Juice Fontaine, who scored those 13 goals, the record at the World Cup in 1958 for France, So, and managed to bring glamour to the club. But still, it was on a knife edge, and it got to 1974, and they were playing a two-legged playoff against Valenciennes in order to try and get into the top division and to secure, uh, in Eshter's eyes, the, the right to be the resident club at Parc des Princes. That if they didn't win this playoff, then, as I said, it could have been oblivion for Paris Saint-Germain. We wouldn't have had the glory that ensued. And they lost the first leg, but managed to win an incredible second leg to get up in 1974. And since then, there have been fixtures in the top flight, even if it took a long time for the trophies to come. Yeah, it was it was a dramatic night, wasn't it, when they went up against Valenciennes. I remember seeing pictures of Jules Fontaine lying on the pitch and uh, there were fears he was having some kind of heart attack and uh, so much drama. Robbie has has got in his time machine and he's managed to um, to get hold of uh, the Israeli striker who played for, for PSG at the time, who helped PSG win that promotion, Mordechai Spiegler. And uh, Mordechai tells us about about his time, how he ended up at Paris Saint-Germain, what it was like to be part of that team that, uh, that, that got Paris Saint-Germain up to the top flight once and for all. I was in Paris Football Club. Mm -hmm. uh, I was there a, a season and a half. And then the Kippur War in Israel. And this uh, completely 
put me under pressure and uh, one month after the war, six weeks, Daniel Esther came to me and he told me, I would like you to join my team. And I said, but I'm not a designer. What do you want me to do? He said, no, I have a team in second division, Paris Saint-Germain. I said, oh, oh bravo. And then uh, we discussed a couple of hours and I uh, agreed to move because he was a, a young president and he was talking to me in a nice way. He told me that just from then, the legend is the coach. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I was disappointed from uh, uh, how, how in Paris things were going on. So I took the opportunity and I decided to move. And I made the right decision and uh, he told me we have to be second and then to play Barrage because at that time uh, uh, Red Star was already first mm-hmm. and Toulouse was second and we were three, number three with five points behind and we have to play only Le Match Retour. Exactly. And I said, oh, and I said well, uh, I think I will help you to come to first division. And uh, indeed, uh, uh, we did it. Everyone yeah. had his long career and we played like uh, uh, for, for, for being together to, to make uh, happy this uh, small club which was created like three years before. Yeah, fascinating listening to Mordecai Spiegler there. And he talks a lot to Robbie about the, the, the charisma and the, the presence of Daniel Eshter. And Eshter's legacy, he's still alive actually, Eshter, and he rates himself as the best ever president that Paris Saint-Germain have had because he took them up from the third division to the top tier, making a, a series of calculated gambles along the way. But the, the lasting legacy in the eyes of many Paris Saint-Germain fans will be the iconic shirt. And um, it was resurrected for the 1996 Cup Winners' Cup. And I hear rumours it might be coming back, a form of it for the 50th anniversary season next year. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, but the, the shirt with the famous bands is all down to him. And he was inspired, actually, by a motor car design. But that, that's the, the shirt that you see people wearing. That's the shirt that genuine, long-serving Paris Saint-Germain fans identify as being their shirt. That is Paris Saint-Germain to them. That's right. It's that, it's that red stripe down the middle of the, the, the blue on either side. And, a red, and it's actually a red racing stripe. He was, he was having a drink on the Champs-Élysées when he saw a Ford Mustang go down the street. And the Ford Mustang was black and orange. And he thought, that is one cool-looking car with the big orange racing stripe down the middle. And he thought, but our colours are red and blue and, and white, and I'll, and I'll make something that. And that, that was where that idea for the shirt came. And it is, it, I think it was voted in the 90s as, as the greatest shirt in European football at one point as well. It's That's amazing. It's it's a it's a good job he didn't see a police car or a taxi and or you know and just go with something more mundane. But Didier, I I grew up in North London. I, my school was quite near Watford, so my mates were Watford fans. There were others who supported Arsenal, Tottenham, and you know in London you had you know all these football clubs. You know Paris now has a superpower, but just one superpower. For you, growing up in the uh, in the eighties, I mean Paris Saint Germain eventually established themselves. They won their first league title under Gerard Houllier in 86. You'd have been a very young man then, young boy. Um, but what, what, what was it like growing up in, in Paris? Were you, 
were you following Paris Saint-Germain? Did people show interest in the club then? No, they show interest in the, in the club, but it was a bit split. I remember going with my dad to, to see Red Star, you know, in, in Port de, de Saint-Ouen. So Paris Saint-Germain was the, the best club, of course, but still, you know, we could support the others. I remember they were Racine Club de France as well, where Luis Fernandez played, but, but overall Paris was the was the main club in, uh, in Paris. So we were following that, uh, that, that team. The first major trophy that Paris Saint-Germain won was in their own stadium. That's where the cup final took place in 1982. They played against Saint-Étienne and it was Michel Platini's last game for Liver. And Platini scored a double. And they were 2-1 up with Saint-Étienne heading into the last minute of extra time. And then it was the former Saint-Étienne hero, Dominique Rocheteau, who managed to score a 120th minute equaliser and it was bedlam. There was a pitch invasion, all sorts of things happened and it took about half an hour for things to settle down before the penalty shootout could take place. And Paris Saint-Germain won that shootout and that was very significant in the club's history. But still, I'd say, you know, in France, you get experts talking about is an équipe homogène. That means are all the players of a similar standard? And... The 1980s Paris Saint-Germain teams were definitely not homogène. You had some journeyman footballers and some excellent footballers. So while you had in the 1986 title-winning team under Ullier, that was his first season after moving from Lens, you had the likes of Safet Susic and Luis Fernandez and Joel Batz, who were outstanding players. You also had sort of club servants like Pilogier uh, and others. And they had the team spirit. They didn't have the best squad by Susic's own admission. He thought that Nantes were by far the most equipped side to win the league. But Paris Saint-Germain got off to a flyer. They hadn't even been top of the league at any point in their history up until that 1985-1986 season, which I find remarkable. We're reading that. I thought, how? How is that possible? Considering they had Bianchi scoring 37 goals in a season in the 70s, but still finished bottom half. How were they never top until 1985? And I think it's the title that's rather lost in Paris Saint-Germain's history. It's the first, but probably the least talked about because it, the, the TV footage wasn't the same. The, it's not the glamour of the 90s players. It's not the, the modern era with all the stars and all, the, all the, the way that that's exposed in the media. But huge, that, huge. But that, Dave, that's, what I was, that's exactly what I was thinking. I feel that um, it does get a bit lost, that 86 title win, um, and that the glamour came when perhaps after Canal Plus bought Paris Saint-Germain and when this huge rivalry started building up with, with Marseille, with the Bernard Tappy of Marseille and Michel Denisot, sort of the two of them, um, you know, feeding off that rivalry. And, you know, Didier, you, you joined Paris Saint-Germain at the, age of, at the age of 13. That would have been, without wanting to give away your age, that would have been 1991. Um, <laughs> by, by that time, were you, um, were you sort of more aware... Of, of Paris Saint-Germain because of this rivalry with, with Marseille? And was that already a thing for you when you joined Paris Saint-Germain? No, they were not, um, you know, the, the, this rivalry at the, the, the start with Marseille. You know, it just came up when, uh, when Canal Plus bought the club, you know, with, uh, with Deniso. Deniso was the president. Then he brought uh, a couple of players, you know, very good players, team players like Le Guen, you all know them, you know, and Guérin, uh, and then Georges Weah and... Uh, 
And I felt with uh, Arthur George, you know, when I was training sometimes with them, more uh, late, later, you know, with Louis, that uh, you, you could feel good in that group. You know, they welcome you so well. But at, at that time, um, they were strong teams, very difficult to, uh, to, to, to beat Paris Saint-Germain. And, um, and those 19s, you know, there, there was so many semifinals of the European Cup. I remember against uh, 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 Real Madrid, I was, uh, how do you say, I was a ball boy. Ball yeah, boy? Yeah. Yeah. A ball boy, exactly. Yeah, I was a ball boy with, uh, with Sylvain Distin, um, our team under 15 in Paris Saint-Germain. It, uh, it was crazy. You could feel there was a, a really good atmosphere in the club, in the team in, the, in that time. Yeah. What was it like, Didier, stepping out at the Parc des Princes as a Parisian who's come through the, the, the youth ranks at, at Paris Saint-Germain and in this team that was developing you know, so quickly with more and more top stars. I mean, it must have been, must have been quite something for you. No, it was, it, was, it was really impressive. You know, first when you come uh, in the dressing room to see all those stars, you're, uh, I remember the first time, you know, I trained, you know, I was very impressed by, uh, by George Weah and, uh, and David Ginola because they were quite, you know, big and, uh, and this charisma. And, but um, as I said, you know, they were they was so kind with the young player that you could fit very very quick in, the, in, the, in that team. And, uh, but at the same time, they were so dominant. You could feel in training, um, there was an atmosphere of winning all the time. You know, they weren't on the pitch to mess around. It was always competition day after day. And you could understand why it was such a bright uh, a period for Paris Saint-Germain because the... the um, the determination, the, the, the level was, uh, was so high at the time. Yeah, for people who don't know, PSG won their second title in 94 under Artur Georges. And during that period, they reached five semifinals in a row, including a Champions League semifinal, five, five European semifinals. Um, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup in, in 96. And uh, Didier, you were there in 97 when they lost the, uh, the final against Barcelona. T- tell us about that, play, because that was the... The Barcelona that had Ronaldo probably in his pomp, the Brazilian Ronaldo before, oh. before his injuries. They had Stoichkov, they had Figo, they had Guardiola. Uh, some decent players out on that pitch. I think it was in Rotterdam, that final. Everywhere, you know, on the pitch, on the bench. Uh, even Laurent Blanc was on the bench. So it was a, a, a dream team in, a, in, a, in Barcelona. But um, apart from that, you know, um, the atmosphere was incredible that day. You know, when I entered the pitch, one hour uh, uh, before the game, I just look on the, on the right side, you know, and I've seen the Barcelona fans, okay, they were there, you know, not too many people. Then I go on the left and I see all the Paris Saint-Germain fans, fools, crazy atmosphere, you know, they, they were already uh, in the stadium. So that was a, a big moment for uh, a young lad for me coming from a, a suburb of, uh, of Paris. But uh, of course, the final was, uh, was great. Great players, as you say, you know, Guardiola was marking Figo, uh, Ronaldo was there, you know. And I think, honestly, I've never seen someone in my life going that fast. Ronaldo was uh, at, at, at less than 80 kilos. It was unbelievable, you know. Execution, his dribble is, uh, you know, to, to have those kind of dribble with that pitch was incredible. Honestly, the, the only thing I've seen after uh, was Ronaldinho uh, when he came to uh, to Paris Saint-Germain. So it was a joy, you know, playing against that team. Unfortunately, uh, we lost. We hit the post, you know, in the second half. I think it was with, uh, with Loco. Loco. But, uh, 
Um, unfortunately, it was a it was a loss. Yeah, Ronaldo Ronaldo scored the penalty, uh, the only goal of the game. Um, but Didier, uh, Kylian Mbappe goes at thirty-seven kilometers an hour with the ball. Ronaldo was quicker than that, was he? Uh, I don't know if it was that quick, but he was. Uh, I think it was. Uh, he, he could go thirty-seven uh, easily. Don't worry about that. <laughs> about that. Just Didier, we touched on the. Um, the, the incredible reservoir of talent that there is in, in, in the Paris suburbs. Um, it's, it's a criticism that's often aimed at PSG that all these incredible footballers, all these kids that come through, you know, whether it's from Paris suburbs or, you know, wherever in, in the Paris region, don't end up coming through at Paris Saint-Germain. Obviously, Thierry Henry is a, is a big example. Kylian Mbappe is, a, is another more recent example. Um, was, it, was, it, was it a problem? I mean, I think it, I think I've answered my own question. I think it was a problem that PSG were not getting these, these top talents. What was it like for you as a kid coming through? Was there enough importance being placed on the youth team? And d- did you feel that you could make it at Paris Saint-Germain? I mean, you did. But, you know, what, what was it like as a kid at PSG? No, it wasn't easy. You know, it, it was not the politics of the club, you know, to, uh, you know, to form young people and uh, to get them in the first team. Uh, of course, you have the academy. They are here, you know, to, to play at the first team. But... Uh, was so difficult because of the the level of the of the of the first team. So um, that's why we 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 kind of tried, you know, to 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 have accomplished that, you know, to uh, to get through the, the 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 first team. But it wasn't the politics of the of the club. It's a uh, it's a bit better now, um, I, I think. But um, it's not easy to get through a club where the, the, the first team you have so many so many stars like, like, like this. You have to have a politics like like Barcelona. Robbie, it does feel better now, doesn't it? I mean when you, you there are quite a lot of youth products who are who are playing regularly in, in, in the first team. Um they're not coming to my mind right now, but Kim Pembe is obviously one. Um Rabio sadly had to go. Ariola is out on loan. Um but you know, it does feel like the Qataris have put more have realized that we have uh, you know and Nasser Al Khalifi actually said at the beginning we don't want to buy Messi. We want to find the next Messi. And, you know, he's going to be here somewhere in Paris. And maybe, you know, maybe Mbappe is going to be that. But there does seem to be more of, a, more of an emphasis on youth. Absolutely, there is. But it's a real double-edged sword because you can have a fantastic youth academy. But if your first team is too good, no matter how good a 17-year-old kid is coming through the ranks, he's not as good as a 26-year-old international. I mean, it's very hard for an Eduardo Camavinga, a Kylian Mbappe. These, they're very, very rare. And I think it's, a, you sort of, it's an easy target to just say, oh, Paris Saint-Germain, this kid's gone and he's playing for Borussia Dortmund or you know, this one's over in, in Lens or in Chelsea and they're, or at Barcelona when they're 17 and they didn't come through the ranks at Paris Saint-Germain. There are a lot of kids playing football. It's a huge business. It's not easy. And you, needed, you need to have the club that, yes, Probably things could have been done differently in the past. You could have had a better scouting. You could have had a, a, a more emphasis, more priority placed on the youth academy than what was in the past. But now it's, it's, a, it's part of a business plan as well. You know that creating young players coming through, maybe they're not going to play for Paris Saint-Germain, but they will carry the Paris Saint-Germain name to the next place they go through. And when they come through, it's also a way of making some money for the club, of, of creating and ensuring that when you do get your Kylian Mbappe who comes through the ranks, they will stay. Paris Saint-Germain at the moment have Presnel Kimpembe, for example, who's a World Cup winner. 
He's in the squad. Alphonse Areola is away on loan at the moment at, at Real Madrid. They have two youngsters who played first-team football this season in Adil Aushish and Tongi Kwasi, who are both just 17 years of age, who played, in, who made the World Cup final in the under-17s with France in Brazil. They're, they're quality young footballers. But do you play Tongi Kwasi? And he has been playing quite a lot um, because he's a very talented 17-year-old. But do you play him in the big Champions League final ahead of Thiago Silva or Marquinhos or Kimpembe? It's not easy to, to give a 17-year-old in the big matches. You need to have big players playing these roles. There are freak young players that come through and you want to be able to have them. But it's, it's easy to say, oh, they don't give youngsters a chance. Oh, it's difficult for a kid coming through. Of course it's difficult. We're not talking about Auxerre or, or even a, a Ren side where a smaller club where there's less pressure. Even a Monaco side, there's less pressure on kids. And they, these are clubs that have fantastic youth academies, Socho. Saint-Étienne with Fofana and, and, and those, those guys coming through at the moment at, at Saint-Étienne, but it's not the same as Paris Saint-Germain. Well, Robbie, we're going to be talking more about um, PSG's modern history from sort of 2000 onwards and Didier Domi's second spell at the club, Le Projet Bonlieu, which was interesting. They tried to, to relaunch the team with, with local talents. We're going to be hearing lots more from Maxwell, from Guillaume Moirot, talking in particular about the PSG supporters and uh, the ultras, the problems that, 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 that they've had when the club decided to dissolve the ultra movement. Um, lots to talk about. We'll talk Kylian Mbappe, we'll talk coaches. Um, so do join us for, for part two of the Paris Saint-Germain podcast. Bonjour madame, bonjour Pana, je te chante tambour battant ces quelques vers mélancoliques, le cœur bruyant comme un tam-tam. J'écris me repentant sous le soleil brûlant d'Afrique, je te dessine une aquarelle. À coups de pinceau sur la rythmique, je me replonge dans tes hivers, j'envoie les mots loin dans le ciel. Pour toi, toute la clique et les tiens qui m'ont rendu si fier, je t'ai mis tout en haut de la liste de mes plus belles réussites. Sans oublier le mot magique, je te dis merci en toute logique. Merci à toi, ô ville lumière. Sans la chaleur du fond de mon cœur, Panam, Panam, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien. Ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va, je te réclame, mon cher Panam. Si je rentre au bercail, me tendras-tu les bras Panam, Panam, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien Ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va Je cultive le vague à l'âme, exilé bien trop loin J'en ai tout un arpège pour ma racambeta À 14h, Panam, t'auras toujours ta place Et pour t'offrir des fleurs, je te dis midi à une terrasse Il vaut mieux tard que mal demain, aujourd'hui sera hier Alors dans l'idéal, on se verra aux folies bergères Le temps qui passe, passe trop vite J'ai tellement de choses à te raconter Tu verrais comme il est magnifique Mon petit Voltaire métissé C'est la musique qui me fait planer Je mets du reggae dans la variété 
plus grand je veux rêver L'insulaire en conquête Et parmi toutes ces belles choses Il n'y a que pour toi que j'en pince toi Qui a peint ma vie en rose toi Qui a fait de moi un prince Panam, Panam, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien Ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va Je te réclame, mon cher Panam Si je rentre au bercail, me tendras-tu les bras Panam, Panam, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va Je cultive le vague à l'âme, exilé bien trop loin J'en ai tout un arpège pour ma flagrante bétale Me balader sur tes faubourgs, je reviendrai marquer une pause En attendant ce jour, voici mes pétales de prose au Paname mon cher Paname, tu as fait de moi un prince, je suis ton humble point sonore, il n'y a que pour toi que j'en pense, au sang tu m'as ferveur, si mon guitare, ou fais l'œuvre mon fond de cœur, donne mon accord, on a bon paix souvenir, ou les tout si mon corps, le vent donne mon soupir, Paname, Paname, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien, ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va, je te réclame, mon cher Paname. Si je rentre au bercail, me tendras-tu les bras Panam, Panam, qu'est-ce qu'on était bien Ça fait un bail, dis-moi comment ça va Je cultive le vague à l'âme, exilé bien trop loin J'en ai tout un arpège pour ma 